Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. If you're like me, the book of Isaiah is a mystery to you. There's a lot of opinions about how to break up this book. In fact, as I've been studying in the last week or so, uh, kind of looking at this book and how to understand it, you just realize that this is how one un- a commentator understands it, and this is how another commentator understands it, and, and it's kind of hard to kind of uh, bring a consensus about understanding of this book. There's a lot of nuance and a lot of intricacy to what we study. In this Advent season, we're going to be diving in to the book of Isaiah, mainly because as we described this morning, the word Advent just means coming, and the one book in the Old Testament that really describes the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ, is this book of Isaiah. And so what we're going to be doing over these coming four weeks is we're going to be just kind of skimming off the top of this book and trying to understand exactly what was predicted about Jesus and how Isaiah understood Jesus as he was predicting his coming. And I want to just kind of give a, the lay of the land from this book. There's an outline here in front of us. Uh, you can see at the top of these two boxes, the, the first 39 chapters describe the judgment of God. And so if you really want to get depressed, go ahead and read the books of Isaiah 1 through 39, uh, and you'll describe, you'll see uh, the first 12 chapters describe the judgment of Judah, and specifically Jerusalem. And then from there, there's uh, a discussion about each of these individual nations, and God pronounces these uh, woes to Egypt, and woe to Babylon, and woe to Assyria, and woe to all of these different nations. And it finally culminates to the story of Hezekiah in verse chapters 37 through 39. But the second half of the book is the book of hope, the book of grace. And in chapter 40, we see a transition where it says, comfort, oh, comfort my people. And the prophet turns the corner and starts to comfort people with the promise of a coming Messiah in chapters 40 through 66. As we look at chapters 1 through 5 here this morning, we kind of want to just give the lay of the land. of uh, This is what we call a chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which is basically the English letter X, but because we're nerds, we use the Greek letter, not the English letter, right? Uh, but you can see kind of the half of an X there. And what we see is that uh, we start with an idea and we end with the same idea. And then we go to the second idea and that matches the fourth idea. But in the middle is this third idea that's the center of this passage. And so uh, Isaiah chapter 1 is going to talk about how, how God will judge Judah. And then in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're going to see the prediction of the restoration of Israel, the envy of nations. And then in chapter 2, 11 through 4, 1, we're going to see the description of the day of the Lord. And this is kind of the center of this passage. And then it'll kind of bring back out to the restoration of Israel, the branch of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 4, and then that God will judge Judah in Isaiah chapter 5. So this morning, we want to dive into Isaiah chapter 1. And what happens in this first chapter of Isaiah is it's almost kind of a uh, prediction of what Isaiah is going to talk about throughout the rest of the book. There's going to be a discussion about God's judgment. And in the midst of that judgment, there's going to be seeds of God's grace and his mercy to his people. So here's our big idea. God brings judgment to establish salvation. We've seen this time and time again. We saw this in Genesis. We saw it uh, in the flood, what, what God brought to bring judgment upon his people. He also brought salvation to Noah and his family. When God brought judgment to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, he also brought salvation to Abraham and Abraham's nephew Lot. 
And God's doing this all the time. He's in the midst of his judgment. He's bringing salvation. And we're going to see this kind of sewn into the, uh, the verses here in Isaiah chapter 1, that God brings judgment to establish his salvation. And we're just going to break this passage into two sections. First, we're going to see uh, kind of God's indictment of the nation of Israel, specifically the nation of Judah in, chapters, or in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. And then we're going to see God's coming redemption in 21 through 31. And we're going to kind of pull out some of the themes and the threads that we have there. Let's dive in this morning from Isaiah chapter 1. And I want to start in in chapter 1, verse 1, as we read about Israel's indictment. But first, we're going to see the introduction of our prophet, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. See, verse 1 gives us these basic facts about our prophet Isaiah. And the first thing that he tells us is that this was Isaiah's vision, that God had given him this vision. Now, we don't know exactly what that means if he saw things or if he just had these kind of individual oracles from God. But regardless, we have this affirmation that he saw these things concerning Judah and that they were presumably from the Lord. The second thing is that he was a prophet uh, through the reign of four different kings. We, we see that laid out for us there in verse 1, through the, the reign of Uzziah, the king of Jotham, the king Ahaz, the king Hezekiah. These were all kings of the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, if you don't know your Israelite history, right, we're not throwing stones at you here this morning, but there was the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, that had been kind of started on the basis of idolatry in First Kings. Uh, and then there was the southern kingdom, and that was Judah. Judah went through periods of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And all of these kings kind of record, uh, represent one of those or the other. As we look at 2 Kings chapters 15 through 20, we see the records of these kings. And we see that Uzziah was a good king. He reigned for some 50 years in Isaiah or in, in 2 Kings chapter 15. But he didn't take down what they call the high places where uh, people would go and perform idolatrous worship. They wouldn't do that in the city centers. They would go and do that up in the mountains underneath trees where there's cover and they would hide themselves. Secondly, they have the the king Ahaz. And Ahaz also was a good king. Excuse me, I, I skipped one. Jotham was a good king. And Jotham reigned for some 16 years in 2 Kings 15. Uh, But he also did what was right typically, but also didn't cut down the high places. Now, Ahaz was not a good guy. Ahaz was one who not only didn't take down the high places, but he also gave to children sacrifice. And he would sacrifice children to appease the foreign gods that were among them. Finally, that gave way to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is known as a generally good king who kind of was just unfaithful at the end. He was the guy who brought in the Babylonians and showed them the house of the Lord. And that kind of gave the Babylonians an idea that they should come in and break down Jerusalem, right? So this is the reign where Isaiah is ministering to these four kings, speaking on behalf of the Lord about the direction that they should go. And he was finally, it says that these were all kings of Judah. Isaiah was primarily a prophet to the nation of of Judah. He mainly spoke to the southern kingdom, Judah, and primarily Jerusalem. But look at what he says in this opening word in verses 2 through 9. He talks about God's wayward children. Look with me at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. 
Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. I mean, we don't know what he's saying, but Isaiah kind of sounds upset. The Lord sounds upset. What's going on in this passage? And really what we're going to see is that there's, uh, Isaiah's going to call heaven and earth to bear witness. That's what he's saying there in verse 2. He's saying, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. He's calling them as witnesses to the implication, the, uh, the fight that's existing between the nation of Judah and God himself. He's saying, weigh in. You guys hear what I have to say, and you bear witness to this. And what he's going to do is he's going to give two images that show forth the the unfaithfulness of Israel. And the first is like a wayward child. Look at verse 2. He says, children have I reared up, or children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And he goes on to say that the ox knows its owner, the donkey knows its master's crib, but these children of Israel do not know their master, the Lord. The second picture is that Israel's sick in verses 5 through 8. He said, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, and there's these open sores in, in, in verse 6 that aren't being tended to. And he goes on and he kind of breaks out of the analogy in verses 7 and 8, and he, he, he speaks about what exactly is happening. In verse 7, he says, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate and overthrown as by foreigners. It's hard to tell if this is actually a present reality as Isaiah's writing or whether this is a future prediction. But what Isaiah is saying is that your, your country is going to be broken down. And specifically in 2 Kings 25, what we see is the nation Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he destroys Jerusalem. He tears down the wall outside of Jerusalem. He tears down the temple of the Lord. He destroys the city brick by brick and leaves it in utter desolation. In fact, that's what's described here later on when we see this whole thing in, in verse, uh, verse, where am I? Uh, verse 8, excuse me, where they're, they're, uh, the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. It's the idea of when you were picking grapes in a vineyard, it got kind of hot, so you'd build a temporary shelter to set over yourselves. And when you were done picking grapes, when the harvest was over, you'd abandon the shelter. You'd just leave it there. Well, that's what is, or Judah is becoming like, right? Judah is this abandoned booth. There's nobody there. There's nothing worthwhile that's there. So God is describing Israel in this way. Now look at verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. See, here's Isaiah's habit in this first chapter of Isaiah. What he does is he describes the coming judgment or the present judgment of God, and then he inserts just a moment of grace. 
And we might just read over this verse and not even think about what he's saying. But consider for just a second what, what he says to the nation of Judah. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Lot is in the city center and he sees these two angels of the Lord coming into the city of Sodom and he quickly takes them into his own house because he knows that the wickedness of this city will uh, try and take advantage of these messengers of God. And so in the midst of that wickedness, God eventually brings such utter destruction that, that sulfur rains from the heavens and destroys this city. Isaiah is appealing back to that saying, if it weren't for God's faithfulness to us, we would have been destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserved to be utterly destroyed, but God left us a remnant. Verses 10 through 20, God brings another accusation, an indictment of the people of Judah. And here he describes their hypocritical worship. Look at verse 10 through 15, what we read this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you, may, you make many prayers, I will not listen. listen. Your hands are full of blood. Verses 10 through 14 tell us how displeased God is with the practices of Judah. And he lists all of these practices here for them, right? These are things that God had specifically commanded Judah and the Israelites to do back in the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He, he commanded them to, to make sacrifices, to do burnt offerings, to uh, appear before him, to have convocations, to hold Sabbath, to have appointed feasts and prayers. And all of these things were commanded by God in his law. So we might come away from this thinking con just confused in the way we think about what God is requiring of them. Why now doesn't God require sacrifices anymore? What is happening here? It's not that he doesn't require the sacrifices. It's that he hates the duplicity of their sacrifices, of their worship. See, later God is going to find fault in Judah for not doing righteousness and pursuing justice. And see, there's no amount of religious activity that will overcome their negligence in these two areas. That if they're not doing righteousness and pursuing justice, all of their praying, all of their sacrifices, all of their festivals are for nothing. And they're a stench in the nostrils of God. It's like a husband who's cheating on his wife, but trying to appease his wife by washing the dishes. Verse 15, the Lord commits to not hearing their prayers. 
says, I will hide my eyes from from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. But again, what God brings in judgment or the promise of judgment, he matches with grace in verses 16 through 20. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, in verses 16 and 19 and 20, God calls Israel to this repentance, to, to put off these old patterns that they had walked in and to put on these new patterns, to do righteousness, to do justice. Uh, but just like there were this remnant in verse 9, he speaks grace in verse 18. Look at what verse 18 says. He says, uh, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. It's, it's as if God's calling them to deliberate with him. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 18. Come, let us reason together. Let's have this argument together. Let's talk about this and dialogue about your behavior because your sins that are like scarlet, I'm going to be abundantly gracious and overlook them and see them as white as snow. God calls them to reason with him, but he highlights his mercy and his grace. Calvin says this, It is as if he had said that he does not accuse innocent persons and has no wish to enter into controversy so that the charges which he makes against them are not brought forward or maintained without strong necessity. He's saying, I'm not going to bring these charges. I'm not going to bring this implication or this uh, charge against you. And God is gracious to overlook them so that our scarlet sins become white as snow. As we read this first section, we recognize that God's son, Israel, was unfaithful, had become rebellious. See, God's sons wander. These Israelites show the depth of their depravity. And there's this massive contrast between the grace and mercy that had been shown to them and the conduct of their everyday behaviors. Think about this. This people, Israel, had a history where God had so undeniably delivered them. He had taken them out of the land of Egypt through this massive kind of story of all of these plagues and wonders that had happened. He went before them as they wandered the desert for 40 years, literally before them and behind them as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He was in their presence in in, in the tabernacle as they would stop. He was constantly with them. These Israelites had been shown a massive grace, but here they are in the land that God had given them working out unfaithfulness and sin. Sound familiar? See, no matter your spiritual heritage, your heart is also prone to wander. It's funny, we sing these Christmas songs. uh, And a lot of them sing about Israel, right? About the story of Israel. I'm thinking specifically about uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, right? 
The verse says this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and rancive captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And we sing these songs and we think they're kind of distant from, I'm not an Israelite, I'm not even Jewish, I, I'm, not, I'm not a part of that. I, I'm not an, uh, an exile, a political exile. And we think we're removed from this history. But the truth is, is that Advent is for us too. Advent is for those who are in need of saving. See, we also need the redemption and renewal that are only realized through Jesus Christ. When Christ came to, to save, he didn't just come for Israelites. He came for all humanity. He came from people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Jesus is the Savior of all those who believe upon him throughout the entirety of the world, not just Americans or Israelites or Europeans or whoever else it might be, God's saving work is worldwide and all throughout people or for people throughout all of time. Jesus is the savior of the whole world because the whole world is desperate for saving. See, Advent is not just for Israelites who are looking for political freedom. Advent is for those of us who spiritually were shipwrecked, were lost, were abandoned, who were in need of Christ. We can read the book of Isaiah and say, maybe that's not particularly about me, but I generally find myself in this passage. I myself am a rebellious, wayward son. I myself am sick from head to toe. I myself, in my sinfulness, have unbounded wounds. I need the hope of Jesus Christ. So we read about Israel's indictment and our indictment in chapter 1, but then God wants to turn to what he's going to do in verses 21 through the end of the chapter. And so we're going to read about God's coming redemption. Look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after a gift. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your aloe. Alloy is something different entirely, right? I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by, by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water, and the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. I promise you there's grace in this passage. So I need you to stick with me for a couple minutes as we kind of work through what exactly the Lord is saying here. 
See, we start in verses 21 through 25. God opposes this unfaithful city. That's what he says in verse 21, right? How the faithful city has become a whore. Now, this is a metaphor that's been used consistently throughout uh, the scriptures. Going back to Leviticus chapter 17, uh, God tells the Israelites, he says, hey, don't chase after or uh, Leviticus 17, 7, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. That's just interesting enough, right? They were unfaithful to the Lord by pursuing idolatrous worship. And this theme kind of runs throughout the Old Testament. We see this particularly in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, where um, there are use of a metaphor of the unfaithfulness of a husband to his wife or a wife to her husband as kind of the sign of idolatry or the picture of idolatry in Israel. Later in verse 30, uh, God will mention the oaks and the gardens. Uh, In this book of Isaiah, we'll see that that kind of uh, plays out as a description of the places where they would perform idolatrous worship, underneath the oaks, in the gardens, somewhere else. So this is kind of a picture of Israel's idolatrous nature. And so really, what God is saying is that this nation of Judah has become unfaithful. And later on, he's spelling out all the ways that she has changed. Look at verse 21. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bride and bribe and runs after gifts. See, what he's saying is that something that was beautiful and unique in the stage of the world has become common and ugly. That's his indictment of this nation, Israel. Verse 23 spells out the specifics, right? Their leaderships, their leaders are rebels and thieves. They ignore the case or the cause of the marginalized. Isn't that what he, he lays out here? Verses 24 and 25, God promises to bring vengeance. The Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Who's that? That's Judah. I will turn my hand against you, smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy. I'm going to purify you through a painful process. And in this way, the unfaithful city will be returned to a city of righteousness. That's what he says at the end of verse 26. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The the city that was marked by uh, the faithful city has become a whore. Now it will become the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And he describes this restoration He's going to restore their judges as at the first, their counselors, all these wise individuals who seek after the Lord will be restored. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. There's the restoration of justice and righteousness in their midst. See, God promises in verses 28 through 31 that the wicked will be consumed.
See, throughout this, we see both these themes of righteousness, the coming promise of grace, and the coming promise of judgment. And the two things are kind of mixed together, aren't they? That's what we're going to find throughout the book of Isaiah. We'll find strong statements of God's coming judgment intermixed with strong statements of his coming grace. And we'll find this in the midst of one another. We're going to see 11 chapters of promise of judgment to Judah. And then in chapter 12, you'll see the promise of redemption. You'll see uh, promise of judgment against the nations. And then in chapter 40, the promise of comfort. You'll see the promise of a suffering Messiah in Isaiah 42 through 55, I believe. See, God brings judgment to his sons in order that he might bring salvation. Specifically, God brings judgment to his son. He brings wrath to his son in order that we might experience his salvation. See, God shows us here that he would chastise his wayward sons to bring refinement. Isn't that what he's saying? He said, I'm going to remove your dross. I'm going to purify you as with fire. I'm going to put you through this process of refinement. But there isn't really hope there, is there? Just think about that for a second. If God were just to press on you and press on you and press on you until you became more and more refined, would you ever actually become refined? See, theologically, we know that's not the case. That The problem isn't just in the deeds we do. The problem is, is more deeper rooted inside of us. We actually have a nature that rebels against God. And so no matter how, how much God presses on us with circumstances and foreign armies and pestilence and all of these plagues that he promises throughout the Old Testament, no matter how much he presses upon the nation of Israel, it doesn't actually produce righteousness. And here, even as we're kind of uh, drawing to the close of the story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we're coming to this realization that no matter how hard Israel's history gets, they don't become more concerned about justice, and they don't become more concerned about righteousness. There might be individual seasons of righteousness, but on the whole, there is a degradation of this nation that they become more and more wicked, and God gives them over to more and more judgment. See, on the whole, you and I don't become refined without the holistic changing of our nature. See, the hope of Isaiah looks toward a day when God would bring wrath upon his obedient son. And in this way, Jesus would save God's rebellious sons, not through discipline that he brought to them, but through grace that he's shown us in Christ. See, there's no way for this refinement to, to make us righteous. But here in Isaiah, God rejects his wayward children in chapter 2, verse 6. But soon he would accept his wayward children based upon his faithful son's sacrifice. I want to show you a, a theme that runs through the book of Isaiah that highlights this. See, we have this theme in the beginnings of it here in, in verses 29 through 31. I'm going to pull this up in, on the screen for us. Verses 29 through 31 read like this. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water, and the strong shall become 
tinder and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench. God gives us an image here in this verses 29 through 31 of, of a tree that is going to burn down to its stump, that it's going to actually become less than what it was previously. And what he's describing here, you will be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. It's going to be like that thing you planted in your backyard that was supposed to produce uh, tomatoes and whatever else, and it just became a pile of weeds. That's what's going to happen. God's going to kind of just remove his blessing from the nation of Israel so that they aren't productive. They aren't the tree that it'll actually be burned down to a stump. In fact, that's what he goes on to describe in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 11. God calls the prophet Isaiah. He puts the, the, the tongue or the, the burning coal on the lips of Isaiah, purifies him, and sends him out with a message. He says, you're going to preach to people who won't listen. They won't respond to the thing that you say. And he concludes in this way. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far and away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, I, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. So again, he's saying, you're going to be like this oak tree that when you chop it down, there's that stump that remains. It's not good for anything, but it still remains there, right? See, God's showing us that Israel is like an oak to be burned down to its stump. It's a picture of their bankruptcy, of their complete and utter brokenness. If we were to kind of go back to Isaiah chapter 5, God gives us a metaphor. He says, I planted a garden. I put a hedge around it. I, I uh, nurtured it and took care of it, but it never produced any grapes. And so what am I going to do with this vineyard? I'm going to tear down its hedge. I'm going to leave it open to the wild. The nation of Judah, he'd manicured it and cared for it, but now he's leaving it open to all of these nations. See, God likens Israel to a vineyard. And he looked to Israel for righteousness and justice, but he couldn't find any. And so now he's going to see it torn down. So they're like an oak. They're like a vineyard. But the beauty of the book of Isaiah is not just this condemnation, that they don't produce fruit, that they're like the oak that's burned down. The beauty of the book of Isaiah is that he promises another branch. In Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So God still has one fruitful vine, one oak tree that would rise up, that would be faithful, that would produce righteousness and justice. This, uh, what was unimaginable to the Israelites is that this discipline would lead to redemption but not the kind of redemption that they were thinking, that they would be refined through this process, but rather that through a Savior, a true branch, a true vine, would come righteousness and redemption. This image shows up in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Isaiah 
53, verse 2, one we're familiar with. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. This is speaking about Christ, the, the true branch of God who's faithfully carrying out righteousness and justice on the earth. See, you and I, in our sinfulness, we couldn't be God's faithful branch. We failed in categories of righteous living and carrying out justice, but God had a true vine, his own son, Jesus Christ, that would execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Jesus came filled with grace and truth, and he lived that out in spades before his people. So that when Jesus went and died a sinner's death, it wasn't the death that he deserved. It was the death that we deserved that he took upon himself. See, we recognize this morning that while we might not be refined, what first has to happen is we have to be redeemed. We have to be brought back from our sinful nature, our corruption, so that we can be refined and renewed as God has promised us. You might say, okay, so what does this, what does this mean? It just seems like a lot of literary kind of concerns and concern about the book of Isaiah. What's it mean for us today? How do we kind of translate this to a Monday morning? Or, or how do we work this in such a way that it has bearing on our lives? So the call of Advent and our call this morning is to rejoice. We rejoice. Let me ask you, are, are you someone who's given to patterns of gratitude and joy because of God's saving work in Christ. Sometimes I'm afraid that we become disconnected from the centrality of this message that we're describing right now. We, we become removed. We think about all the things we have to do. We become concerned about our children and we become concerned about our marriage and we become concerned about our work and we become concerned about this and that and the other and all of a sudden we are fundamentally just distracted from God's gracious provision for us in Christ and what we need is a pattern of just putting on joy because of gratitude in the gospel I'll be honest with you this morning that's been my habit for the last couple months just lost sight of God's grace to me in Christ so I want to call us to just three behaviors this morning that through this Advent season might aid us in the process of, of living a life of gratitude. First thing is work hard to understand the wayward nature of your own heart. See, what Isaiah 1 describes to us is a people who had lost their way. They had um, become these kind of unruly children of God. They had kind of put up with their own brokenness. They had disease, as the metaphor is used in Isaiah 1. And God's kind of bringing to light some of the issues of, of just the um, disconnect between their heritage and their everyday life. And so we have to do the hard work of understanding our own wayward, sinful hearts. Don't rest on religious rights to affirm a faith that doesn't exist. Isn't that what the Israelites were doing? They were relying upon sacrifices and prayer and festivals and all of these kind of rule-keeping things uh, to make them right with God. And God's telling them, no, this is, this is not good. Don't rest on religious rights to affirm a faith that doesn't exist. See, church attendance doesn't save you. Tithing doesn't save you. Your good works don't save you. 
your performance in any category doesn't save you in any way, shape, or form. What saves you is Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. See, we need to find how our heart gravitates towards godlessness. We ourselves fail in these two categories, don't we? We, we fail to produce righteousness, and we fail to uphold justice. You realize that? You say, well, what's it mean for us to fail to produce righteousness? Righteousness is just the idea of it's right with God. We produce uh, things that are against the character of God himself. When we lie, our God is a God of truth. When we pursue impurity, God is a God of purity. When, when we do those things, it stands in contrast to the nature of God himself. So we produce unrighteous actions all the time. And by grace, we find that God covers over those unrighteous actions with his own blood. You might also consider that we don't do justice. I don't know if you heard this story a, a few weeks back. There was a, a woman on a, a Philadelphia subway train that was raped in the presence of multiple witnesses. And nobody even bothered to call 911 or do anything. But we stand... And we watch injustices happen, and we do nothing about them. I'm not just talking about the large-scale injustices, the uh, trials, the whatever else. I'm talking about we are concerned for, as Isaiah 1 says, we're concerned for the cause of the orphan and the widow. We want to see justice done. We want to see equality happen for those individuals, for their station in life. So we fail in righteousness. We fail in justice. The first thing we do is we work hard to understand the wayward nature of our own heart. Secondly, we remember God's true branch, Jesus Christ. See, we, if we just talk about how sinful we are and how we've fallen short of God's righteousness, all that's going to do is, is leave you empty and void. Sometimes we do this as conservative Christians. We, we want to talk about the sinful nature and just understand uh, the implications of being totally depraved and, and understanding all this, but we never move to the next step of looking to our Savior, Jesus, who performed righteousness for us. We actually want to be ones who press into the work of Christ and see the righteous life that he has given us. Are you a liar? Jesus was a truth teller. If you are impure, Jesus was perfectly pure. Every action that we've performed that is a violation of God's character, Jesus performed faithfully and pleads before his own throne, the Father's throne, a better word than our sinful record had spoken. And so the second work that we need to do to, to rejoice is not just to understand our sinful nature, but to understand our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, the thing we need to do is to affirm the grace of God. We come into God's presence and we recognize, God, I thank you for grace. I thank you for kindness before your throne that I did not deserve. When I had just brought nothing but unrighteousness and injustice before your throne, you gave me righteousness and justice in Christ. You gave me kindness and mercy in Jesus. Thank you. Let's be those this holiday season that aren't content to just 
vaguely affirm peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's be those that recognize God's kindness and mercy to us as individuals in Christ. To see that God has extended grace and extended mercy to the worst of sinners that we find in ourselves. I want to pray to that end that God creates a gratitude-laden heart. That He moves us to rejoice. Pray with me. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to rejoice. Give us a season, this four weeks, these next four weeks, this Advent season, that we would be filled with gratitude and awe at your goodness and your mercy in Christ. As we read these words of Isaiah, we recognize that we also are deserving of your judgment. But Lord, that you were good and kind to intervene with your grace. Thank you for this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.